6. I'm pretty sure about that passage. John chapter 6. We've read uh, the accounts from Matthew and from Mark, and now we want to look at uh, John's um, account of this uh, event that takes place after the feeding of the 5,000, and uh, see what uh, the Lord has for us here this morning. You know, many people come to Christ in hopes that He will make them happy. Maybe they're struggling with uh, personal problems and they, they, they hear someone say, well, you know, you come to Jesus and He'll solve all your problems and He'll make you happy. And so they make a profession uh, to trust Him and to gain the peace and joy that they long for. Or they maybe a, have an unhappy marriage or they're having problems with their kids and they've heard that, you know, Jesus can help. Maybe they saw a bumper sticker that said, try Jesus. You know, if you just try Jesus. And so they say, okay, I'll try Jesus. I'll go to church and I'll see what I can find out about this man called Jesus. Because they know or they think they know that Jesus is going to make them happy. But then they come to Christ and they find that, oh, the problems just get worse, not better. Uh, things, things are not exactly as the so-called salesman, I mean preacher, promised them. They feel like uh, when you sign up for an offer, you know, and only to find out it was a bait and switch. And if they had known what they were in for, they probably wouldn't have signed up. But you know, the crucial question in life to answer is Jesus' question that he had to his disciples in Matthew 16. That's where I got the Matthew 16, I guess. Matthew 16, verse 15, where it said, But whom say ye that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? If Jesus is who he claimed to be, and who the Scriptures show him to be, then we must follow him as our Savior, and our Lord, even if it results in being ridiculed, being sneered at, perhaps even tortured, or in some places in this world, having to be killed for your faith. The Bible is quite clear that many godly saints are going to suffer terribly because of their faith. In fact, Paul promises in 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And the main reason for following Christ is not because he can make you happy, and I believe he can make you happy, but uh, that's not the main reason, but because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the eternal Son of God. He was sent from the Father to provide the only way to heaven through his death and resurrection. Now, we've already seen, as we've studied this book uh, thus far, God is using John to write the book. And he's writing about some miracles or some signs that Jesus did. And we might ask the reason, uh, ask the reason why he used these signs, but we've noted it before. The purpose is given to us in chapter 20 and verse 31. 
that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Now, it's important that we believe in Jesus for the right reasons. And that is that we'll grow in him, that we might not wish, uh, or that we might wish to be like him. Now, John, and also Matthew 14, Mark chapter 6, follows the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 for the miracle, uh, with the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. But John here is really giving us a shorter version. It's a shorter version of the story. And it, for example, John doesn't tell us that Jesus compelled the disciples to get into the boat. He doesn't tell us that Jesus sent the multitude away or that he was praying on a mountain. Uh, he even omits Mark's comment that Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars or that he intended to pass them by. We're not told any of those things here in John's account. He doesn't say that the disciples thought they were seeing a spirit or a ghost, although he does say they were afraid. He doesn't mention Peter's walking on the water, as it does in Matthew 14. He doesn't tell us that the storm was instantly stilled when Jesus got into the boat. And so we might be a little puzzled why John, who wants us to believe in Jesus, the Son of God, omits all of these things that uh, the other gospel writers give us. And he even admit, omits the disciples' worshipful response, which we read in Matthew fourteen thirty three, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. As we're not told why this account is included, but it is given in a compressed form, and then followed. the following narrative goes back to the feeding of the 5,000. He'll go back to that as Jesus is going to expound on being the bread of life. And so you have to ask, why did the Holy Spirit have John include this sign in the gospel? Why does he want, what does he want to us to take away as we think about it, as we meditate upon it? Well, one of the clues to this, these questions might be what John told us back in John chapter 1 and verse 14, where he said, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John reports the miracles so that we too will see Jesus' glory and trust Him in life's storms. Anybody have a storm in their life? Well, this miracle was private. Only the disciples saw it. So it was for their training, but it was included in God's word for our training. We're not reading too much into this story to say that the disciples were confused and disappointed with Jesus' response to the multitude after he fed them the loaves and fish. You see, the, the crowd had proclaimed him to be a prophet of whom Moses spoke, and they wanted to to take him by force and make him their king. The disciples had placed all their hopes in this Galilean carpenter prophet as the promised Messiah king who would deliver his people. Even the disciples had given up their livelihoods to follow him, and Jesus had sent them out on a mission to proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand, and so they were expecting 
that Jesus would establish that kingdom at any moment. And now after Jesus has shown himself to be kind of a new Moses, so to speak, by providing bread for this crowd in the wilderness, the people want to make him king. And this is what the disciples had been waiting for. But rather than capitalizing on the mood of the crowd and moving ahead with their desire to see him enthroned, Jesus tells the disciples, get into a boat and head across the Sea of Galilee toward Capernaum, where he sent the multitude away, and then he went up into a mountain to pray himself. So what was Jesus thinking here? And then to make matters worse, after Jesus forced them to get into a boat and put them on a lake, he didn't even go with them. Then a strong wind comes up against them, and they have been in one storm on that lake when Jesus had been asleep in the boat with them. But he woke them, and he rebuked the storm, and the sea was instantly calm. But now he's not even with them. So they think. It's reasonable to assume the disciples might have been confused, might have been disappointed as they were trying to row against this storm. And here they are trying to help bring in God's promised kingdom and help people see that Jesus is the promised Messiah King. And in obedience to Jesus, they set out across the lake without him. But now they're caught in a storm. And in that setting, Jesus came to them walking on the water to teach them that even though he wasn't the kind of Messiah king they were hoping for, he was still the Lord of all creation. They needed to get to know him as he really was, not as they had hoped him to be. So Jesus wants not followers who use him for their own purposes, but he wants followers to grow to know him and trust him for who he is so notice first of all following him for the wrong reason jesus does not want followers who have misconceptions about him uh, as to who he is who use him for their own purposes look at john chapter 6 and verse 14 again verse 14 and 15 then those men whom they had seen the miracle Jesus did, said, This is of truth, the prophet should come into the world. And when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Now, Moses had been a revered leader for Israel. He had led Israel out of bondage into Egypt, and through him God gave the law and provided manna in the wilderness. And if Jesus was a prophet of whom Moses had prophesied back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, then maybe he could deliver Israel from the Roman domination. Maybe he could usher in God's kingdom where Israel would enjoy peace and prosperity. So they wanted to make him their political king. But they didn't want to repent of their sin. They didn't want to submit to him as Lord. Rather, they wanted a king who would improve their living situation. They wanted a king who would usher in peace and prosperity. And in short, they had misconceptions about who Jesus is, and they wanted to use him for their own purposes. Even the disciples fell into this wrong way of thinking about Jesus, as we, uh, as we know here. Right after Jesus asked them this crucial question, Crucial question in back in Matthew. He said, but whom say ye that I am? 
Jesus told them that he had to go to Jerusalem where he would suffer many things, be killed, and raised the third day. But again in Matthew, it says there that Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But Jesus rebuked Peter. He said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things be of God, but those that be of men. Peter had the wrong conception of who Jesus was and what he was, his mission was here on this earth. I hope that doesn't describe you this morning. But it would not be uncommon if it describes some of you. There was a woman who was a visitor to, her, uh, to a church for the first time. And she came up to the pastor for some prayer after the service. And she and her husband had moved to a particular place, uh, town, for a good job that had been offered to her. But after a short while, a job uh, the, while on the job, she was terminated. And she got angry at God because she felt he was leading them there, but she lost her job. The pastor wasn't able to help her see that the trial was from God's loving hand for her good and her family's good, but that she needed to trust him, submit to him, and even give thanks for the opportunity to grow in her faith. You see, she had misconceptions about who Christ is. She wanted to use him for her own happiness. And when that didn't work out, as she had envisioned, she grew angry and bitter. I wonder how many times the same thing has happened to us. We think, well, God's led me here, and now things aren't working out. And we get upset at God. We get angry. We get bitter. Do you ever get upset at God? Do you ever get bitter and angry because something has gone wrong in your life? You see, following Jesus is not just so you can be happy. Following Jesus isn't just so you can have your own way. Perhaps you too have a misconception of who Jesus is and what he wants to do in your life. Rather than following him for your personal happiness, we need to be following for the right reasons. Following for the right reasons. Jesus wants followers to grow to know him, to trust him for who he is. Isaiah 55 verse 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, part of growing to know the Lord is growing to know His ways, to submit thankfully to His ways when they run counter to our ways. You know, one test of whether I'm truly submitting to God's ways with me is whether I'm grumbling or giving thanks when things don't go the way I want them to. I don't know about you, but you know, it's really easy to say, Oh, this is crazy. I'm, you know, grumble, 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 instead of saying, Lord, I don't know why this has happened, but I thank you for it. Because I know you've got to teach me something through it. If I'm trying to use him when I, then I'm acting as Lord, and I'm saying he's my servant, instead of he's Lord and I'm his servant. 
Biblical Christianity means I submit joyfully to him as Lord and I'm his servant. John's account of Christ walking on the water brings out five ways that we grow to know and trust Jesus for who he is. Number one is the person of Jesus. The person. As we read the verses here, John tells us that Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. The disciples got into a boat. They started to cross the sea without him. And then John adds a very interesting statement here in verse 17. It says, And they entered into the ship and went over to the sea toward Capernaum. And now it was, it was now dark and Jesus was not come with them. Or Jesus was not come to them. Now, can you imagine being out on the sea and it's dark and you've got this storm going on? I don't know. I think I'd be a bit afraid. You see, I'm not skilled as some of you are at handling boats. And so if you got out on a pretty good sized lake or as this was called the Sea of Galilee and I think it was about six miles wide and you get a pretty good storm squall going on and you're in this boat and all you've got some oars to get you to the other side I think I'd be a bit afraid now you probably wouldn't be I, I'm, but I'm a fraidy cat it comes to things like that but I understand there's only one thing to do in this situation I uh, did a little reading about it I understand there's one thing to do, and that's to turn the boat around and go with the wind. Go to safety. That sounds reasonable to me. But these men don't do that. Why? Jesus had said, go to the other side, and they never dreamed about going back. And though they did not know the spiritual significance of the Lord's mission, they kept right on going. And they kept on even though the Lord was not physically with them. So they thought. So not only was Jesus not with them, he also let them struggle against this storm for many hours. John says they rode 25 to 30 furlongs. That's about three and a half miles. The other gospels say that it was in the fourth watch of the night. That's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. My mom and dad said nothing good happens after midnight. So... Uh, you know, here they are, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And they're probably exhausted and perhaps wondering whether or not they should have turned around or not and let the wind blow them back to their starting point. And so at this point of great need, Jesus then comes to them walking on the water. Now, if you could interview John as he recalled the event, he might say something like this. It was an awful thing. It was awful to be out there on the lake in the dark storm that long and without Jesus in the boat. But if he had not sent us into the situation, we would not have seen his glory and his power when he came to us walking on the water. The fresh vision of who Jesus is made it all worth the toil and the anxiety. You see, although such trials are never enjoyable, 
As the author of Hebrews tells us, and we've seen in our study of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. I read one person's words about the trials of his life, and he said, Contrary to what might be expected, I look back on the experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, everything I've learned, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. You see, the storm kept them from joining the crowd in their air of wanting to make Jesus a political king. I think that when we're in heaven, we'll look back and we'll see many instances in our life when there was a trial or there was a situation that we didn't go through as we wished actually kept us from some temptation that we would have fallen into. There's one result of this miracle was that through it the disciples grew to know the person of Jesus in a way they'd never known had they not been in this storm. You know, God leads you and allows storms in your life so that you can find out who he is. You can find out more about the person of, of Jesus as he takes you through the storm. Jesus often sends us into storms so that we can grow in our understanding of who he is when he comes to us in a powerful way in the midst of the storm. And so the first thing we see is the person of Jesus. The second is the purpose of Jesus. Now remember, these people proclaimed Jesus as their prophet and were willing to make him their king, but they were omitting the other office that might come before he is crowned their king. He is the priest who offered himself as a final sacrifice for our sins. The disciples did not learn that lesson until after the cross and after the resurrection. But this miracle was one of the many times that Jesus had to repeat this lesson before it finally sunk in. One of the main lessons of the Christian life is that God's purpose is not centered on me and my glory. God's purpose is about Jesus. It's all about him, not us. God's purpose is to sum up all things in Christ. Ephesians 1.10 says that in, the disp- this, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in, all, uh, in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And to that end, he's working all things in our lives for his glory. Maybe you're thinking, well, I thought he was working all things together for my good. That's not what Romans 8.28 says, does it? He is, but your greatest good is bound up in Jesus' glory. Your greatest good and your ultimate glory is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And when we're perfectly conformed to the image, his image, it will be to the praise of his glory. And so we have the purpose, uh, the person of Jesus, we have the purpose of Jesus, and then we have the providence of Jesus. The disciples here went from the mountaintop experience. I mean, that must have been some experience, seeing 5,000 or 
20,000, if you count the women and children, fed from five loaves and two fishes. Wow. That was an amazing thing. And so they go from that experience to now being in a storm out on the sea. And Jesus isn't anywhere around. And just as Jesus knew what he would do when he fed the 5,000, so he knew that he was sending his disciples into a storm and he would come to them to calm their fears and increase their understanding of who he is. Mark 6 and verse 48 says that Jesus saw them as they rode against the winds and they were uh, at least three to four miles away. So Mark is referring to Jesus' omniscience here. And Jesus knew exactly where they were on the stormy sea to walk to them. And they thought they were alone, but they were really not alone. They learned that even though they didn't know it, Jesus was fully aware of their circumstances and he would come to them in his time. And as the other gospels state, he was praying for them when he was on the mountain. But they didn't know that until later either. God's providence means that nothing happens to us apart from his sovereign loving will. Jesus isn't asleep in heaven. He is there praying for us. He's intercessing for us. He's our intercessor. He's our advocate. And even as he's praying for the disciples while they're fighting against the storm, in his perfect time, he'll come to you. He'll come to me when we go through the storms of life. But we've got to trust him even when we can't see him or figure out any reason why we're in that storm. We see the providence of Jesus, but then we see the power of Jesus. The disciples had seen Jesus create bread and fish to feed a large crowd. Now they see the Lord uh, as Lord over creation as he walks on the water. You see, it doesn't make any difference what trial you're going through. You may say, well, my trial's pretty bad. I've been through some tough trials. It doesn't matter what your trial is. Jesus can come to you in the storm of life. Even if you can't imagine how he would do it. You might say, how, how's the Lord going to get me out of this one? At the same time, he's not, it's not always his will to use his power to deliver, deliver, us, deliver us from his trials, these trials. Here, he stilled the storm and the disciples got safely to shore. But he didn't deliver John the Baptist from the uh, Herod's sword, did he? He could have. He didn't call legions of angels to spare himself from the cross. He could have. He later delivered Peter from prison, but he didn't deliver James. Hebrews eleven thirty three through 37 shows us that by faith, many, many people experience powerful deliverances from their trials, but also by faith, others were tortured and they suffered martyrs' deaths. But whether it's God's will to deliver us or to take us to glory through death, we should know and we should trust his mighty power in the trials that he's put us through. And then finally, the presence of Jesus. One of John's main emphasis here is in recounting this miracle is that Jesus' presence with them in the boat got them immediately to their destination. Look at verse 21. Then they willingly received him into the ship and immediately... 
the ship was at the land, whether whether they want. Now, the theologians, they discuss this and they think, well, it maybe happened soon or it maybe, you know, my Bible says immediately. I'm going to take that as it says. You know, when it says immediately, that means right now. He got into the ship. Hey, there was several miles left to go. I don't know how he did it. But it says immediately the ship was at the land. Now, there may have been another miracle here. John may mean that Jesus was in the boat and they quickly got to their destination. I, I, I'm not sure if that's, but it says immediately, doesn't it? It doesn't say quickly. At any rate, Jesus' presence with the disciples calmed their fears in the storm. And as Jesus says in verse 20, it is I, be not afraid. And when we experience Jesus' presence in the middle of life's storms, it will calm our fears. Now, I want you to just notice when he says, it is I. Remember when he said to Moses, I am? This is almost saying the same thing here. He's identifying himself in the, here as it is I, but he's also claiming to be Jehovah who identified himself to Moses as I am. Perhaps John, in light of this overall purpose, wants his re- readers to see at least a hint here. Obviously, Jesus point in John 8:58 where he says before Abraham was I am because of who he is Jesus presence with us gives us comfort now when the lord gave the great commission he also gave the reassuring promise and lo I am with you always even unto the end of the world amen that was david livingston's verses he endured countless hardships in the 19th century trying to open the interior of africa to the gospel he said on those words i staked everything and they never failed it's the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor so there's an end of it lo i am with you always even to the end of the world even to the jungles of africa even to the north woods of Wisconsin. I'm with you. So why do you follow Jesus? Is that you can use him to make you happy? Or is it because he's the sovereign Lord of creation who demands our submission and our loyalty, even if his ways are not what we expect? I think there's another underlying current of this story and that's Christ's patience and his grace toward the disciples Mark in chapter 6 reports that they had not gained any insight from the feeding of the 5,000 they didn't really get the get the lesson later they were still clueless about the feeding of the 4,000 in Mark chapter 8 but the Lord didn't give up on them Even though we're so often slow to learn, the Lord is gracious. He's gracious with us as we struggle to know Him and trust Him for who He is. Even when things do not go as we expect or hope for, you can know that Jesus is still the Lord over all. And though your trials, through your trials, you can grow to know His purpose, or His person, His purpose, His providence, His power, and His presence. And you will look back and say, you know, That storm was worth it because I grew 
to know more of who Jesus really is. When you're faced with the storms of life, think about the disciples in the ship. And think about the person, the purpose, the providence, the power, and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life as well. Let's pray.